one who believes the Son has life. That's how you get this new nature. That's how you get this new creation. But there's a problem. Dead people don't believe. Dead people can't believe. So yes, life is in Christ, and you access this life by faith, but where does this faith come from? Where does this receiving come from? And our point this morning is that the new birth encompasses all of that. That's what we are going to talk about. The life that Jesus offers is like light. It shines. The problem is we are darkness. Darkness, John says, cannot and does not receive the light. It's impossible. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not grasp it. This is clearly the problem with Nicodemus. He's unable to comprehend. Verse 2 tells us that he's in darkness. Verse 3, that he cannot see. Verse 4, that he's unwilling to accept Jesus' words. Look over at chapter 8 with me at, at, at an example here of the crowds. This, just this total inability that characterizes the crowd and all these unbelievers that Jesus is confronting. Why is it they cannot believe? <clears throat> Look at chapter 8, verse 43. Jesus is speaking to them about what must happen, about their need for him. Verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's literally, you are not able to hear my word. Why aren't you getting what I'm saying? It's because you are not able. Why are they able? Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will, your desire is to do your father's desires. So you see, it's a problem of desire. In other words, the inability we're talking about here is not a physical inability. It's not as though an inability of a kind that you command to a person that's chained to a chair, get out of the chair. And they say, well, I want to, but I can't. I'm chained. It's not that kind of inability. That's not what we're talking about. This is an inability on the level of desire. It's a moral inability. It is the kind of inability of coming to a person sitting in a chair. He's not chained there, but he loves his chair. I love this chair so much that it is impossible to get out of this chair. Come, get out, rise. No, I love it. That's the kind of inability that's going on here. That's what Jesus is addressing. They're children of the devil and they have desires from their father. That is what is being confronted by Christ. And that is why we need the new birth. That's what the new birth must overcome. So what is our hope? If this is the condition of man, then what hope is there that any will respond to Jesus? Yes, he's the source of life, and you access that by faith, but where does that come from? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So you can see in your outline, we are still under point two, new life in Jesus by the Spirit is mankind's greatest need. And we're on point D in your outline, the new birth is the result of the Spirit's life-giving work. Look at verse 7 now. Chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone 
who's born of the Spirit. In verse 7, Jesus is responding to Nicodemus' apparent shock. He's apparently blown away by, by what Jesus has been telling him. Like, I'm a ruler of the Jews. Of course I'm going to the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're not going to the kingdom unless this happens to you. He's blown away. In verse 7, Jesus tells him that this birth is a universal necessity. Jesus says, it is necessary that you all be born from above. Notice, he, he, he's not just saying you. It's literally you all. It's plural. Not just you, Nicodemus. It's all of you. All of you Pharisees. All of you Jews. Every person in the world. It's necessary for you to be born again if you're going to get into the kingdom. This truth of the need of a radical transformation of the heart is as old as God's word itself. It shouldn't have been a shock to Nicodemus. He should have gotten it, but he didn't. Before we move on, I want to point out one thing here. Notice what it says. Look what Jesus says. Jesus is not giving Nicodemus a command. What does it say? You must, literally, it is necessary for you to be born again. He's not telling him, okay, Nicodemus, go. Go make yourself born again. Go do this thing called the new birth. It's not what he's saying. Spiritually dead people are no more able to make themselves alive than dead Lazarus was able to raise himself from the dead. Spiritually dead people are no more able to make themselves alive and give themselves a second birth then a baby made themselves to be born the first time. Jesus says you must be born again. This is a passive verb. Be born. Well, be born by who? Well, by God. You must be born again by God. In other words, in the new birth, something happens to us. Yes, we experience something, but it happens to us. It is not caused by us. We do not cause the new birth. It is absolutely necessary to experience in order to get in the kingdom, and yet you cannot do it, and you cannot cause it. It must happen to a person, and yet we have no ability to make it happen. You probably think that's quite unsettling, Michael, <laughs> and I agree, it's very unsettling. This is something that must happen to me. It must happen to my friends. It must happen to my coworkers, my loved ones, or else we're not getting into the kingdom. And I have no ability to make it happen in me or in them. It's something I cannot control. It's something I cannot do. I'm at the total mercy of the will of another person to do it or of another being. You must be born again. God must cause spiritual life to happen in your souls, or you will not enter the kingdom, Jesus says. The question is, well, well, how does he do that? And if we do not cause it, then who causes this thing called the new birth? Where does this come from? Well, look at verse 8. It's the point of verse 8. The new birth is the creation of spiritual life by the Spirit. Jesus has just declared in verse 7 that this thing called the new birth must happen to Nicodemus and that he shouldn't be surprised at that. And now in verse 8, he declares just what must happen in order for this new birth to happen. So, so, so what does it mean to be born from the Spirit? What, what does that look like? 
Look at how these verses relate. Verse 6 says, that which is born from the Spirit. Verse 7 says, you must be born from above. And at the very, very end of verse 8, it says, so it is with everyone who's born from the Spirit. So I take that to mean verse 8 is an explanation. It's an illustration for everything Jesus just said about being born from the Spirit. What does it mean to be born from the Spirit? You must be born from above. It's like verse 8. It's like the wind. Let's read it. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. You do not know from whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who's born from the Spirit. This word here in verse 8, wind, in Greek, is the same word for spirit. It's pneuma. And it can be translated in another uh, number of ways, either spirit or wind or even breath. And context determines it. Here, it's used with this word to blow, which the word blowing always refers to wind. So I think wind is the primary interpretation, but there's clearly two meanings going on here, right? So yes, he's talking about wind, but the point is that the wind is illustrative for the workings of the Spirit. Jesus means for us to understand that what he says about the wind here, we must apply to the Spirit, or, or, or more accurately, to the new birth by the Spirit. Right? So this illustration of the wind is to teach us what the new birth by the Spirit is like. Before we dive in here, I want to invite you back to the book of Ezekiel with me. Remember last week we were in chapter 36, the new covenant, this new heart, which Jesus alludes to by water and spirit. That was chapter 36, but what comes after chapter 36 is chapter 37. And what's that about? Do you know? Who knows? What is chapter 37? It's a very familiar story, very famous scene. It's a valley of what? Dry bones. And I think Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel 37 here. Last week in chapter 36, we saw this promise of restoration to the nation of Israel. And it would not be merely a return to the land from exile. It would be a spiritual restoration of the people of Israel. That's what they need. They don't simply need to get back in the land. They need something fixed here. And now... Chapter 37 comes, and it really is a visual illustration of everything that was declared in chapter 36. So we don't have time to go through this passage to unpack it, but let me make a few points here. First, the dead, dry bones represent the nation of Israel. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Dry bones on the surface of the ground meant they're dead. And they've been there a long time. They're not buried means they're under a curse. Spiritually dead, under God's judgment. Number two, the promise of God's spirit in chapter 36 is illustrated in this chapter. Look at chapter 37, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, to these, say to these bones, prophesy to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath, spirit, to enter you, and you shall live. Verse 6, I'll lay sinews upon you, cause flesh to come upon you, and I'll put breath in you, spirit in you. It's the spirit of God who comes, who creates the life. Number three, 
This language is new creation language. Remember, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, how did God make Adam? He formed him from the dust into a physical body, and he's still not living. What must happen? What does God do? He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. That's the picture here. This is a new creation that's happening through God's spirit, giving life. And the point is, it's going to be first a spiritual recreation that's going to happen to Israel and to, amazingly, us Gentiles. And I think this is what Jesus is alluding to in John 3, 8. He's already taken us to Ezekiel 36. Now he's taken us to Ezekiel 37 saying, how in the world does this new birth thing happen? And Jesus says, it's like wind. So go back to John 3 now. Have that in your mind, in the background. This picture, dead bones, spirit coming upon them, giving life. Fulfilling this promise of chapter 36, born of water and spirit. But now, what's Jesus saying in verse 8? Let me pull out a couple things. Jesus says that the new birth is the result of the Spirit's working of his own free will. These bones are dead. The Spirit must blow on them. But which bones does he blow on? Look what it says. The wind blows wherever it desires. Jesus says, in this same way as everyone who's been born of the Spirit, they are the result of the Spirit blowing where he desires. People talk a lot about man's free will and man's right and ability to choose God. Although John over and over says we're enslaved to sin. We're dead. Dead bones can't choose God. But not many people talk about God's free will. God's freedom to do whatever he pleases, to give life to whomever he desires. The Spirit gives spiritual life. What does that mean? It means he enables people to believe and so to receive the eternal life that Christ offers. And he does that to whomever he desires. And according with the purposes of the whole Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit are all desiring in the same direction. He blows freely and sovereignly on whatever dry bones he desires to blow on. That's the point. Look over at chapter 6, verse, 30, verse 63. Real quickly here. Chapter 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Well, I thought it was Christ who gives life. Life is in the Son. He does. But how does the Spirit give life? It's by uniting you to Christ by faith. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It can't. The Spirit must do this. Flip back to chapter 5, verse 21. The Spirit blows on whom he desires. And look what it says about the Son. He's very similar. Chapter 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to who? To whomever he desires. It's the free will of God in granting the new birth. Number two, chapter three, verse eight. This new birth is experienced but cannot be controlled or predicted by individuals. Jesus says, you hear its sound but you don't know from whence it has come and whither it goes. 
The wind is mysterious. It has a will of its own. I mean, even now, with all of our modern technology, we can't even predict where the hurricane's going. We can have all these ideas, and it's usually wrong. We, have all, we can't predict it. We can't control it. We just experience its effects. That's all. Dia Carson said, we can neither control him, the spirit, nor understand him. But that doesn't mean we cannot witness his effects. Where the spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. What are those effects? Well, the primary one is faith. <laughs> I received Jesus. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. What is the connection? What's our role in this thing called the new birth? Spirit produces faith. The Spirit doesn't respond to our faith, but our faith is the result of the Spirit's life-giving work. And weak theology here affects so much. It affects ministry. It affects evangelism. I'll give you one good example. It was at the first Great Awakening in the 1700s. There's a genuine revival that took place. Masses of people came to Christ, came to a genuine conversion. And it was through the faithful teaching and preaching of the pure gospel by men like Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield. But it's not because they figured out how to make converts and to manipulate the spirit and manipulate people to making decisions. It was because they were just committed to ordinary preaching of the gospel and the spirit chose to blow through their ministries and convert many. And yet about 100 years later, weak theology started permeating the churches. And we get this thing called the Second Great Awakening, where the First Great Awakening was tried to be reproduced. But conversion was now something that man could control and manipulate. The Spirit followed the initiation of man. Many methods were invented to manipulate people to make decisions. And there was many false conversions as a result. Jesus tells us here that we cannot control the spirit any more than we can control the wind. He blows and gives life to whomever he desires. And if we've experienced life, if we've experienced faith and received Christ as this, it's not because we took the first step to God. You might not have known that at the time. You might have think, I need Christ. I'm a sinner. I need him. Of course I believe. But this is pulling the curtains back and showing, actually, yeah, you did. That's right. That was the right response. But where did that come from? Jesus is saying it's because the Spirit gave you life. Did, uh, Andres Kostenberger said, despite its inscrutability, spiritual birth is real. As real as the mysterious movements of the wind. Moreover, just as the wind blows where it pleases, so the Spirit's operation is not subject to human control, leading all efforts at manipulation. So before we move on, let me just unpack a couple implications of this truth for our lives. Number one, this teaching ought to drive us to total dependence on God for the salvation of sinners. We have them in our lives, in our families, friends, relatives. It should drive us to prayer, knowing that God can do this, and he must do this, or else there's no life. It shouldn't be abused as an excuse for neglecting prayer 
shouldn't be used as an excuse for neglecting sharing the gospel. It's to drive us to depend on God who's able to do this. What else are you going to pray? God, just nudge him a little bit, but don't give him life. God, open his eyes. Create new life there. I know you can do it. Number two, this teaching is here to help us see what actually happened to us at conversion. Like I said, all of us, when we're saved, we don't know what went into our salvation. We don't know how it happened. <laughs> the part of growth is to find out what, what went into this thing called conversion, called salvation. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Yes, I confess my sins. Yes, I express faith in Christ. But where did that come from? And why did I do it and not my brother and not my uncle? And the answer is God's sovereign grace. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ by his spirit. The point is to call us to unspeakable gratitude and lay us in the dust of humility. Had not God done this, I would perish. It's also meant to fill us with massive assurance in our salvation. It's not meant to call us to doubt it and question it. The point is that if you have an ounce of love and trust in your heart towards God and Christ, that didn't come from you. <laughs> That's evidence that God has already been working in your heart. He's already done something in your life. The flesh doesn't produce that. If you love and trust Christ, it's evidence that he's already chosen you. He's come after you, given you life, and brought you to his son. So that's the new birth. You must be born again. Means what? Receive from Christ eternal new life, cleansing from sin and a changed spirit. And where does that process come from? It comes from the spirit who gives life, who grants faith and receives. That's a very big question. It's a very important question. Um, we don't have time this morning to tackle it. How about we tackle that next week? I would say, um, in one sense, God doesn't desire any to perish. He doesn't enjoy um, damnation as much as he enjoys pardon. And at the same time, he has other desires. And he desires to save some. And it's mysterious. And uh, we want to go as far as scripture will take us. But we'll unpack that a little bit more next week, okay? So remind me. Very good, very good question. Well, we have about five minutes left, and we got a few more verses here. Next week, we're going to tackle verses 14 and 15, but I want to finish by looking at verses 9 through 13. Look at the third section here. Jesus is the ultimate source of revelation and eternal life. Nicodemus, naturally, <laughs> is absolutely blown away by what he's just heard. Look at verse 9. He says, how can these things be? That's not an innocent question saying, now can you explain a little bit more how this works? It is, it's rejection. It's literally, these things cannot be so. I, I refuse to accept that. 
Jesus' words are, are, are foreign to him, although it shouldn't have been. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Literally, the teacher, a master teacher in Israel. And you don't understand these things? In other words, he should have. Well, why? Well, because this is based in and rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus already alluded to Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37, as well as many other places that talk about the same thing. And it's a foreign concept to Nicodemus. He doesn't get it. And it's not that he, he doesn't get what Jesus is saying. He gets it. <laughs> he doesn't like it. And he doesn't want to receive it. And ironically, this rejection of Jesus' teaching on the new birth is exhibit A for how much he needs it. It is because of his spiritual blindness that he doesn't see it, that he doesn't receive Jesus' teaching. A major evidence of spiritual deadness is an ignorance of how dead we are and how much we need this new life. Well, look at what happens next. Nicodemus not only failed to heed the prior witness of the Old Testament, but now Jesus declares to him that he failed to receive the even more reliable witness of Jesus. Look at verses 11 to 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm just point out three things from these verses. Number one, Jesus is saying that his words are in concert with the Trinity. Verse 11, a lot of interpretations. What does Jesus mean by this we? It's a lot of options there. I think, I'm inclined to think Jesus is saying that his words are authoritative because he's bearing witness in concert with the Trinity. Nicodemus has already confessed that Jesus has come from who? He's come from God. His signs testify to it. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I've come from God and I come and speak in his words. My words are in concert with the triune God. And this will be echoed all throughout the Gospel of John. Which leads to the next point. Verse 12, his words about the new birth must be believed as a prerequisite to receiving greater spiritual truth. He said, if I spoke to you earthly things and you don't believe, then you most certainly will not believe if I tell you heavenly things. So what are these earthly things that Jesus is, is talking about? Well, I think from context, it's pretty clear. It's things that take place where? On the, on the earth, which in a context, it's what? It's the teaching about the new birth. That's what he means by the earthly. If you don't understand these, these things that must take place in this life, on the earth, then how will you understand my teaching about the things that can happen in the kingdom? This is kingdom entrance 101. If you don't get this, and if you don't experience this, none of that's going to matter, and you're not going to get any of that. In other words, this teaching about the new birth and experiencing the new birth is the entry point into the rest of Jesus' teaching. This has to happen first. Finally, his words are authoritative about heavenly and earthly matters because he's the son of man. So where does Jesus get off claiming that he has absolute accurate knowledge about this life, what must happen on earth, and about heavenly matters? So who do you think you are, Jesus? Well, verse 13 says, no one's ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This ascension is not talking about Jesus' post-resurrection ascension. It's 
He's saying no one has gone up into the realms of God and remained there such that he could bring back this comprehensive knowledge to man. No one's done that. We've seen this in Proverbs before, remember? This need to have ascended to the realms of God, know everything there is in order to know how to live life. Jesus says no one has done that except the Son of Man. Jesus says that he has existed there with the Father from eternity, and therefore he has the ability to tell us about the new birth, what must happen to us, and his words must be heeded. But we're going to see next week that he's not only a source of revelation, he's also the source of eternal life itself. And I am so looking forward to next week. Prepare, be reading, be meditating, verses 14 and 15. It is one of the clearest, most reassuring, most comforting passages on the nature of faith. If you've struggled with what does it mean to believe, am I really believing like I have? Come next week and, and listen. All we're saying here, we're, none of, nothing that we've been talking about cancels out the need for faith cancels out the fact that your faith is really real, takes any responsibility away from you to believe, it's just the massive truth of God's grace that enabled you to do that very thing. So come back next week and we're going to unpack these truths. God's amazing grace. So any questions, comments, it's 1015. It's weighty stuff and there's sure lots of questions. Yes? I'm sorry? What does in concert mean? So think of just like a music symphony. In concert, all the instruments are playing together. They're not contradicting each other. Same idea. It means they're in accord with one another. Jesus' desires or Jesus' words are not over here and God's words are over here. They're, they're together. They're, they're, they're in sync with one another. So, yeah. Good, good question. So. You really need to give my brain an exercise. <laughs> Any questions, comments? We'll be thinking about these truths, be meditating, um, and uh, come back next week. I uh, mean, just be in the pinnacle of this passage in verses 14 through 15. It's absolutely, absolutely glorious. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And beyond that, we thank you for new life. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And Lord, we wouldn't have that life if it wasn't for your mercy, giving us life through your Spirit, causing us to be born again, granting us to see and remove the blinders and the darkness. Oh, Father, there's so many that we know that this has not happened to. And while they're still alive, there is yet hope, and we pray you would do that work and that we would be faithful to preach the gospel and that the spirit would blow sovereignly giving life through it and opening the eyes to the glory of Christ we love you Father thank you for your mercy in Jesus name we pray alright any praise back to you tonight because there's